Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. The African diaspora has made an indelible impact on American and international food. On this week's show, we'll speak with three James Beard Award winners to explore the history and culture of African American cooking and to learn how African flavors are inspiring new dishes today. We begin with author Adrian Miller. In his book, Soul Food, Adrian presents a refreshing look at one of America's oldest and most mythologized cuisines. From mac and cheese to red drink, Adrian uncovers the history of soul food and what it means for African-American culture and identity. Then we hear from writer, culinary historian, and Judaic studies teacher, Michael Twitty who'll illustrate for us the connections between African and Judaic food traditions. And finally, cookbook author and food justice advocate Bryant Terry tells us how he's transforming the soul food of his ancestors, applying vegan sensibilities, all the while staying true to his roots. We're taking a deep dive into the history and flavors of African-American foodways on this week's Louisiana Eats. Adrian Miller is an African-American food history scholar from Denver, Colorado, whose topics of interest include everything from barbecue to presidential foodways. He's the author of Soul Food, The Surprising Story of American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time. Since it was first published in 2013, the book has gone on to receive numerous accolades and was awarded to James Beard for reference and scholarship. Within its pages, Adrian outlines the history of soul food and explores its connection to the greater African-American experience. When we sat down together to discuss his book, I began by asking Adrian how he defines soul food. So there's two layers to this. So first I say soul food is the national cuisine of African-Americans and one of the traditional foods of African-Americans because African-Americans have made contributions to several cuisines. Chesapeake Bay Area, the Low Country of the Carolinas and Georgia, and also Creole cuisine, you know, lower Mississippi Valley. But soul food is really the interior South, the deep South, the Black Belt those foods that leave the South as black migrants settle across the country. So what I define as the interior South, the black belt, is starting in the western part of the Virginias and then Carolinas, and then this broad swath of land going through Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, into Arkansas, parts of Louisiana, and then ending up in East Texas. And it's really where cotton was grown. And it was the highest concentration of enslaved African Americans pre-Civil War. And even after that, the highest population was pretty much in that area. And so when economic opportunities open up in the 20th century and people leave that part, most people left that part of the South mm -hmm. for other parts of the country. Bringing their soul food with them. Correct. 
At what point did your interest in that special kind of American food begin? All right. So I know when people hear I'm from Denver, Colorado, I lose street cred. So let me bring you back. <laughs> I've got two Southern parents. Okay. So my mom's from Chattanooga, Tennessee. My dad is from Helena, Arkansas. So I grew up eating soul food. Used to have neck bones and rice, pig's feet, you know, fried chicken, catfish, all of these foods, greens, black eyed peas. And the strongest expression of it was really for Thanksgiving because uh -huh. we would have the turkey with the southern sides and then New Year's Day. So I'm going to admit on air that I eat chitlins <laughs> only twice a year, Thanksgiving and New Year's. But then we would have black eyed peas for good luck, greens for the folding money, candy jams, cornbread. And then for dessert, we would have lemon icebox pie. That was our kind of favorite New Year's Day dessert. Yum. I can tell from the way that you're talking about it, somehow chitlins is like a defining dish. So tell us about chitlins and why it's so important for you to claim yourself as a chitlin eater. Yeah, so I think chitlins is the iconic soul food dish because often there's a lot of confusion between Southern and soul. And I think chitlins is a line of demarcation. There's nobody on the fence about chitlins. Have you ever heard anybody say, oh, you know, I could take or leave chitlins? No. No, they either love it or hate it, right? Uh -huh. I'm on the love side. And, and many <laughs> people are just like so horrified by the concept because explain what it is. So it's pig intestines and you, <laughs> you pretty much make them one of two ways. You either stew them and that's the way I'm used to. I've never had them fried, but fried is the other way that it, they're done. Besides they're horrified about what it is, they're horrified by the smell. I think that's a lot of reasons why people don't eat chitlins. <laughs> Um, but I think chitlins also plays into this idea that soul food at its origins is the master's leftovers. Mm -hmm. And what I try to do in this book is show, well, no, it's got a really high class pedigree. And it used to be an aristocratic dish for the English and the French back in the Middle Ages on. And I show stories in the book about where you had whites eating a lot of chitlins too. Um, but I think over time, as whites disavowed chitlin eatings, it's something that still stayed within African-American culture. And I think chitlins are the sweetbreads of soul. That's a great way to look at it. I, I, I think we could see it on menus if it was defined that way. Yeah. <laughs> what are the true distinctions between Southern food and soul food? Yeah, so this is one of the most frequent questions I get. So there's a lot of confusion between the two cuisines because there's a lot of overlap, a lot of common ingredients and techniques. I think of soul food as being more intense than Southern food and a limited repertoire of Southern food. So to me, um, there's a stronger emphasis on variety meats. So the neck bones, the oxtails, you know, chitlins, that kind of thing. Um, I think there's more intense flavoring. So I think soul foods tends to be spicier. So mm. more use of cayenne pepper, maybe more sugar, more pork fat, other things. And I think a lot of that is because of the, the foods that were used, right? The poverty foods that needed to be spiced up. But I think Southern food tends to be more subtle in its flavoring. Um, and then outside the South, which I think soul food, again, is a national cuisine, you find that only certain things are really known uh, compared to the bounty that you have in the South. So I'll give you two examples. Peas, black-eyed peas are the ones that are iconic around the country because as people moved outside the South and wanted those foods, black eyed peas was the one that didn't spoil as often as the other peas. So mm -hmm. it was great for the emerging industrial commodity chain. Also in greens, collards is kind of the iconic Southern green. But, you know, in terms of soul food, I think turnip greens, mustard greens, kale and cabbage are also popular. But you all are eating cress, poke salad, all these other delicate greens that, again, could not be shipped to other parts of the country. Mm. So I think that's why soul food is a limited repertoire. I read that John Edgerton's 1993 book, Southern Food at Home on the Road in History, piqued your soul food interest even further. How did... 
Yeah. What, what was that about? Well, at the time, I was uh, in between jobs and watching way too much daytime television. So I said to myself, <laughs> I should read something. So I picked up his book. And early in that book, he said, the tribute to black cooks is yet to be written. Now, I'm reading the book in around 2000. So it's several years after he wrote it. So I tracked him down on the internet. And I said, this is a really interesting statement. Do you still think this is true? And he said, yeah, for the most part, people have dealt with parts of it, namely Jessica B. Harris and some others, but no one's really taken on the whole subject. So with no qualifications except for eating the food a lot and cooking it sometimes, I said, oh, I could do that. And that started me on the journey about just trying to researching what was out there. I reached out to some food writers and they said, look, you know, this country's racist. So this cuisine and its cooks has not been celebrated. Cobble together the best book that you can. But thanks to the digitization of old newspapers, magazines, and all the cookbooks out there, I found out, yeah, these cooks were celebrated. hundred years ago, African-American cooks were put on par at the same level as French cooks in terms of their reputation for cuisine and cooking. So where did they begin to part ways? Well, let's talk about how they come together. Okay. So what happened is a lot of wealthy families would have their enslaved cooks sent over to Europe to apprentice under a French chef so they could do that French cooking because that was the cuisine of entertainment. So a lot of French techniques come into uh, what we would later become soul food via this training, this elite training that they got. Can you give me an example of something that survives today that is a French influence in soul food yeah. cooking? I think spoon bread is the perfect example, a uh, cornbread souffle. I yes. think that's the best example of kind of that. And then you see similar dishes in the rustic cooking. Like if you think of uh, black eyed peas with some ham hock in it, to me that's very similar to cassoulet. I mean, cassoulet is much more advanced and involved to that, but you could see kind of similar. Yes, but I think spoon bread true. is the basic example. So... Um, we get to the late 1800s and early 1900s where you have people coming from other countries to the United States to sample our cuisine. And they're saying the cooking of African-Americans, these black cooks, is on par with French chefs, which is an astounding statement. So I think where it started to part ways is when you saw the, the movement of these cooks from cooking in hotels and other things to kind of restaurant and home cooking. I think then our society kind of started to snub what those cooks were doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and part of it was the advent of white chefs. As you saw the industry changing and embracing more and more whites cooking, the black chefs start to get denigrated. How did the black power movement of the 1960s change the American view of soul food? Yeah, so before that, soul food was called either southern cooking or down-home cooking. So in the 1960s, you had a conscious effort to link the food with culture and identity. So that was the big story in the 1960s. Now, a lot of people think soul food was coined then as a term, but it actually has been in the English language for much longer. Before that, it was a religious term, right? It was anything to edify your spiritual life. Mm -hmm. So when we fast forward to the 1960s, the Black Power Movement advocates were saying, look, this is the food of our culture, our identity, and white people, you don't know what it is, and you can't even understand it or relate to it which is news to white Southerners because they were used to eating a lot of the same foods. Yeah. So I think that's where we start to see this thing that African-Americans in the South make soul food, white Southerners make Southern cooking. And I think uh, that is the legacy of what we see today with no African-Americans really strongly associated with Southern cooking, at least in media circles. Well, do you ever come across anybody who hates it when that term is used? Oh, yeah. There's still some people that don't like the term soul food, because even though in the 1960s it was all about creating a cohesive culture, it still was strongly associated with poverty and the master's leftovers. So there's a stigma to the food, and some don't want 
to be associated with that stigmatized cuisine. So I think that's why you see some African-American chefs who even may make these things not calling it soul food. In fact, one of the big trends right now is kind of upscale Southern. Mm -hmm. So they're taking these things, reframing them, repurposing whatever, putting it on a plate, charging you $20 and calling it Southern cooking. Now, you talked about this connection to feeding the soul. What do you see as the true origin of that term soul food? So to me, um, I think the true term is about the African-American experience, born through poverty, born through oppression, just the, the realness of the African-American experience and the triumph over adversity. And so soul food plays off the tangible and the intangible. And I think that's a lot of the story with the duality the African-Americans have in this country. I mean, we're citizens of this country, but we're not fully citizens in this country. So we're almost like familiar strangers and that we don't enjoy the same rights as other people uh, and we're still striving for that equality. So I think soul food catches that tension and that through all that we've been through as African-Americans, in many ways we have the most honest expression of being American. We'll have another serving of Adrian Miller's soul food coming up next. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Ralph Brennan's Redfish Grill, home of the award-winning barbecue oyster Poor Boy, and nine varieties of fresh gulf fish caught and served daily lunch, dinner, and private events at 115 Bourbon Street in the French Quarter. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Adrian Miller, author of Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine one plate at a time. Our conversation continues as Adrian reveals the West African origins of soul food and what it means for African-American culture and identity. So um, there's several foods that originate in West Africa, namely black-eyed peas, where they're called cow peas in English over there. Um, to some extent, certain greens come from there, although a lot of the greens that we eat here are substitutes for those greens, and then also okra and watermelon. So when you think about West Africa, and I define West Africa as the band of countries from Senegal in the north to Angola on the south along the western coast of the African continent, um, there are several kind of what I call culinary carbohydrate zones, because the typical West African meal is a starch served with a stew, a sauce, or a soup, and that could be alongside the starch or on top. And so the starches are rice in the north area because they have their own indigenous rice. And then as you move down the coast, things like grains like millet, 
sorghum, black eyed peas become important. And as you move further south, then you get to the root crops like yams, cassava and other things. And, you know, you all will know this in Louisiana, but outside of <laughs> Louisiana, I often have to explain that what we call a yam in this country is not the same as a tropical yam. True. And I explain why there's been identity theft, because um, what we call a yam here is really a dark flesh sweet potato. The identity uh, theft, does that have anything to do with what you call the whitewashing of Southern soul food? Oh, no, I think it's early on when the sweet potatoes were introduced into West Africa. They were uh -huh. called the white man's yam. Okay. And so I think that just is a carryover. I think it was confused from the day one, and that carried over. Well, then what is the whitewashing of Southern soul food? The best example of this is the current day trend for nose-to-tail cooking. Oh, yeah. Yeah, celebrating the animal, <laughs> right? Cooking the whole animal. And so now you're seeing oxtails, pig's feet, pig ears show up on white tablecloth restaurants. Necks. Right. All sorts of animal necks. Right. And so now it's recast as the celebration of the animal and, again, getting charged a lot of money for it. And then the, the African-American contributions or roots or even the West African origin of these foods are obscured. There's no connection, historical connection there. And I just think if we're going to take the time as chefs, I'm not, I shouldn't say we because I'm not a chef, but if chefs are going to take the time to locally source their ingredients, yeah, they could give a little history too. You have a whole chapter on why black-eyed peas are superstitiously considered to be lucky. Mm -hmm. What's the deal with that? Yeah, so that was a fun chapter to check out. So um, there's no corollary for black-eyed peas necessarily meaning good luck on New Year's Day in West Africa. So it's really an old Europe superstition that um, African-Americans end up embracing. So a lot of European traditions had this idea that, um, and it wasn't food necessarily gets transferred to food, but the idea was that on New Year's Day, you have to have somebody with dark hair and dark eyes be the first one to knock on your door. If that happens, then you would have a good year. And so uh, you have that tradition. And then in West Africa, the cowpeas were often associated with deities. So with certain deities, they were the favorite foods. Um, and so they were often used for blessings for twins or births or other things. So you can see that cowpeas had this specialness. Uh -huh. So now you get to the Americas and you've got this tradition about the black eyes. Um, and also in West Africa, black eyed peas were often considered an amulet for good luck because it warded off the evil eye. Oh. Yeah. And so you see this th these things kind of come together. Now, the other part that I didn't talk about in my book, which I wish I explored more, is you have Sephardic Jews from around the world having black eyed peas on Washersana. Um, and some believe that the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, says that you are to have black eyed peas. And so there were early communities of Sephardic Jews in Charleston and Savannah, and there may have been an influence there. That's fascinating. I think so, too. Now, you almost left what is considered today to be part of the soul food genre out of your book, Macaroni and Cheese. Mm-hmm. So how did it get included, and what was your thought process on all that? Well, I just thought macaroni and cheese is identifiably Italian, but also I just thought it was so mainstream that it would be hard to make a soul food connection. But so many of my African-American friends just threatened to slap me upside my head that I just could, <laughs> I caved to peer pressure. So that's why I included it. And I'm glad I did because I found out a fascinating history of mac and cheese, how it starts as this very elite dish. So in the Middle Ages, European royalty was grubbing on macaroni and cheese. Now, really? Yeah. It wasn't the goopy mess that we love today. It was yeah. pretty much just the pasta with Parmesan cheese um, shavings on it. So it was this rich person's dish, again, for a, a lot of years. Probably um, had some truffles, too. Probably, right? <laughs> and then cream and other things start to get added to it. And so it enters African-American cooking because it comes to the big houses of the South, again, as an elite dish. And some credit... Thomas Jefferson for spreading this around, but I think it was around before he was on the scene. And so African-Americans um, were often make, doing the cooking, and I think that's how it enters 
into our cuisine. Now, it starts to come down the social ladder because of two things. One, because uh, it was very expensive to get Parmesan cheese and also to get the imported macaroni. So American farmers became very good at making, growing durum wheat, which is necessary for true macaroni. And then also we got the American dairy industry got really good at making cheddar cheese, which was an acceptable substitute for Parmesan cheese. So the cheddar cheese that we have today is different from what they were making 200 years ago. And from what cheese experts tell me, old British cheddar was very similar to Parmesan. Oh. And so, so when those two things get cheap, then you start to see the price of macaroni and cheese come down. And so it leaves this elite status and becomes more of a working people's dish. And then, of course, in the 1930s, the advent of the blue box changed everything. So it became oh, yeah. a real convenience food. Now, before I read your book, Soul Food, I never realized the importance of what's known as red drinks mm. in a typical soul food meal. What is the red drink and explain why it's so important? All right. So you have to understand that in soul food circles, red is a flavor. Okay. So the red could be red Kool-Aid. I think red Kool-Aid is the official soul food drink. Okay. But it could be fruit punch. It could oh. be a strawberry soda. It just has to be red. So what I found is um, just before I even wrote the book, I just noticed in most communal settings, there usually is some kind of red drink. And even in soul food restaurants, there's usually some kind of red drink offered. And I was just wondering, well, what's that about? Um, and so I looked back and I found out that there are several ancestral red drinks that crossed the Atlantic during the slave trade. And they're ones that people have had but probably didn't even know. So one is cola. And I know people say, what is this dude talking about? Colas are brown. Well, if you turn around the bottle or the can, there's always caramel coloring. Um, so cola nuts, are, the main ones are either white or red. And a red cola nut tea was often used as a means of hospitality. So you welcome someone, you can give them cola nuts and they can just chew them. They're going to have a red cola tea. And that's very popular. And then also hibiscus tea. So in West Africa, it's called bisop, but there's a hibiscus tea that comes across, lands in Jamaica. And if you've traveled in the Caribbean, you've probably have heard of sorrel, mm -hmm. which is a Christmas time drink. That's that West African flower. Now, it starts to make its way around Latin America and South America and it starts to be called agua de Jamaica. So if you go to a Mexican restaurant and get agua de Jamaica, you're drinking that West African drink. That's fascinating. Yeah. And it's the same formula as Kool-Aid, right? For cola nut teas and for the hibiscus tea. You get some water, you color it red and sweeten it to taste. <laughs> Okay, man. I never thought I'd hear red Kool-Aid lionized quite like that. <laughs> now, I have to say, there is a generational shift happening. Yes. A lot of youngins seem to like purple drink more, oh. and that's distressing to me. I say this in my book. I believe the children are our future, <laughs> that we should teach them well and let them lead the way, but I'm not sure what red drinks. That was Adrian Miller author of the James Beard award-winning book, Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time. Adrian's currently hard at work on a new book about the history of African-American barbecue culture called Black Smoke. I can't wait to talk with him about that. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Michael Twitty is a James Beard Award-winning writer, culinary historian, and historical interpreter 
who explores food through his many identities. He's an African-American whose interest in Jewish culture led him to convert to Judaism in his early 20s. When speaking with Michael by phone, we discuss the intersection of Jewish food and soul food traditions and a cross-cultural spirit he describes as kosher soul. I began by asking him when he first became interested in Judaism. Well, when I was about seven years old, I grew up with my feet in many different places, one of which was a neighborhood in the Washington, D.C. area called Kent Mill. And Kent Mill now, even more so, is basically an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. And I grew up on the edge of that neighborhood, and you played in the sukkah, you know, in the fall. And all that got into me somehow. When I was seven years old, I told my mother I was Jewish. And my mother thought that was really odd. But she let me be Jewish for a week. And uh, it, it ended abruptly when I was told that I had to go to the doctor's office for a certain operation. Um, oh. oh, yeah. My mother knew how, to, knew how to pull all the stuff. What was your original and, faith? Well, I mean, I grew up in a nominally Christian household. Neither one of my parents at that time in the game was really that church-going, that religious. And, you know, my grandmother was far more spiritually Christian than anything else. She certainly believed in the what I call the old religion, which uh, y'all have a lot of down in New Orleans. Yes, we do. So what happened to bring you back to that seven-year-old wanting to be Jewish, Michael? I never really, you know, I never really lost that interest. Um, And I describe it as more of someone who just kind of shifts their place as opposed to someone who just makes a leap. You know, I did imbibe a lot of the black church growing up. But later on, when I was more in college and I did a lot of programs with black Jewish relations, you know, I knew this stuff. I knew so much stuff that we would go on synagogue visits. They would ask me, are you sure you're not Jewish? And I said, no, I'm, I'm sure I'm not Jewish. But wait a minute, but you know, and that it's very funny how insider cultural knowledge often people assume you got to be that thing, that person, that identity, to know so much. Um, but it came down to a point where I just kind of felt uncomfortable not being involved in the cycle of holidays. I studied so much that it began to become a part of me in a way that I had not anticipated, that I did not really understand. So I eventually, I was working with the Smithsonian Folklife Festival for the Washington, D.C. program in 2000, and I talked to my professor from AU, I was doing classes at American University of Jewish Studies, and she said, sure, I'll introduce you to Joe Nathan. Oh, Joe Nathan, our mutual yeah. friend. Big, big part of the story. <laughs> and I went over to Joe Nathan's house. She lives in D.C., and we um, talked. She taught me how to make a challah recipe she just brought back from Israel, which is the best challah in the world, by the way. And we talked, and I said, can we talk to a Sephardic rabbi? She said, sure, I'll connect you. So, lily pad to lily pad, I ended up at the synagogue where I converted, which is a Magen David Sephardic congregation. So, that's really where you find the African strain of Judaism in the Sephardic concentration of the religion? It's much closer. It's much closer. I mean, thinking that there were African Jewish communities into what is now Mali in northern Nigeria, 
and other parts of West Africa, all of whom probably originated somewhere in Morocco and North Africa, and everywhere these people went, eventually you ended up looking like people you settled among. You know, that's a big part of it. But also there's Ethiopia, there's the people who live in Southern Africa, they have no connection to anybody but the Jews from Yemen. So there's this incredible sort of sense there are people of color who are Jewish all over that, you know, many of these communities predated the communities in Poland and Russia mm. by a long shot. But it's even more uh, salient to me because you go to Cuba, there are black Jews in Cuba, in <laughs> Brazil, in corners of the world you never thought. You know, I was looking through a, a catalog, as it were, of free black families in Antebellum, Charleston. You would not believe how many of them had the last name Levy or Cohen. Wow. That is really fascinating. And were some of the black Jews also enslaved peoples? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No doubt about it. In fact, there's one document from the very beginning of the transatlantic slave trade that talks about how a lot of the communities in what is now the Sahel region of West Africa were eradicated and sold into slavery. Wow. That's for real. This is such a fascinating story. And the analogy that you make about the history of African Jews being braided together, just like the Hala, it's so evocative. Well, I mean, it's two parts of a whole. I call it blending tones. You know, how do we survive? How do we survive using humor, using food, using spirit, using the will to overcome, as opposed to fusing? You know, it, when we fuse stuff, it's almost kitschy, it's almost funny, it's almost corny. Mm-hmm. When we like, mix the tones together, that's when we get the deeper meaning of who we are. Let's explore this Judaic part of your story a little further and move on to another piece of the puzzle that you call Kosher Soul, which also, by the way, is your Twitter handle. So what do those words really represent when you put them together? Well, it's kind of like one way of branding one part of my identity. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of like more than one more than one person in one being. And um, that part of my identity is when those tones mix. It's a way of saying that the symbolism and meaning and deep value that Judaism and Jewish learning play in my life meets the soul element, the soul tradition the soul people, and just the kind of the African aesthetic that I grew up with. You know, I am I am the guy who will walk around the streets of Manhattan with an Obama keeper, uh, a cowrie shell ring, and uh, a bowl of cotton in his lapel. That's <laughs> me. That's just me. You get what you get. It's fun because it's living to be your authentic self. Yes. So when it comes to the plate, I guess here's the best way to say it. The food that I put out in my own personal circle and setting is an invitation to this complex identity we've been talking about. If people cannot understand or comprehend me on any other level, they can understand me through my plate. I've really focused my energy on a um, very well-known West African proverb, sit at my table and you shall know me. That's beautiful. And really and truly, food is the international language. So tell me, What do you serve? What's on that plate? Well, this will make you happy. Um, (laughs) I am not a sufganyot, a jelly donut person. I do beignets. You do beignets. I fried donut, yes. 
According to our friend Joan, those beignets are very closely tied with the juice from Alsace-Lorraine. And that's very exciting because I didn't know when I was down there that Cafe de Monde was kosher certified <laughs> as well. And I was introduced to them by a friend of the family. She was from Louisiana. And she brought a box back to my mother. My mother said, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> so she handed it to me. This is when I was a teenager. Uh-huh. And I just mixed them up and did all that. And I've since learned how to make them from scratch. And I just thought, this is perfect. It's cooked in oil. It's southern. You can cook it up. It's, it warms you up in the cold. It's just a really good match. Um, but I also make a West African-style brisket. And what goes you into know, that? The Trinity goes into that with a lot of hot pepper, a lot of tomato, a lot of green pepper, green onion, the whole deal. But also, you know, I rub it down with a spice mixture that's classic Nigerian called suya, which is kind of like berberi in um, Ethiopia or curry traditions in India. It's a really good meat-spice mixture that you kind of like rub and let sit on the meat and you can grill it or you can slow bake it. I do a little bit of both. I kind of par-grill it and then I let it sit around for a while. Everybody gets what they want. African-American Judaic writer and culinary historian Michael Twitty. His book, The Cooking Gene, was the winner of the 2018 James Beard Foundation's Book of the Year Award. about a red drink liquor. Ever heard of that? Stay tuned and we'll tell you all about a Brooklyn distillery making a high proof red drink with Caribbean roots. Louisiana Eats returns after a quick break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. And now from our newest sponsor, the St. Tammany Tourist Commission. There's a world of delicious wonder just waiting for us all north of Lake Pontchartrain, where you can join in the fun at the Louisiana Food Truck Festival, taking place from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. on Saturday, September 28th, at the Harbor Center in Slidell. Over a dozen food trucks from across Louisiana will be competing, and there's live music by Category 6 and Christian Surpass and Ghost Town. Admission's free, so don't miss the fun. For more information, visit louisiananorthshore.com. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eat. week's culinary quiz question brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What about a red drink liquor? Ever heard of that? 
Louisiana Eats listeners may remember Jackie Summers, founder of Jack from Brooklyn, who we met several years ago during Tales of the Cocktail. Jackie is the exclusive maker of Sorel, a liquor based on a 400-year-old recipe inherited from his grandparents. It's commonly made as tea, like red drink is in the Caribbean, but of course, originally heralds from Africa. Made with hibiscus flowers, Jackie's spiced herbal beverage is 15% alcohol by volume and makes for a very interesting component in craft cocktails. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. My name is Bryant Terry. I am a chef, a food justice activist, and an author living in Oakland, California. I'm very happy to be back in New Orleans where I went to college and happy to be talking to Poppy. For cookbook author and food justice activist Bryant Terry, getting people excited about healthy food has been an inspiration for much of his work. Author of Vegan Soul Food, The Inspired Vegan, and Afro-Vegan, Bryant is working on carving out new ways to create equitable access to fresh, healthy foods while staying true to the roots of Southern foodways traditions. We sat down to talk about how he's transforming African, Caribbean, and traditional soul food in ways that don't compromise his vegan sensibilities. The food actually came out of my desire to create social change and particularly thinking about um, changing food systems, changing the way that people are uh, growing and consuming food. And part of it was living in New York. You know, at the time, I was actually a graduate student in um, history at NYU. And my research led me to some work that was being done in the late 60s and the 70s in the Bay Area by the Black Panthers. And they had this brilliant analysis that looked at the intersection of poverty, malnutrition, and institutional racism. And, you know, just understanding that poor people needed to be fed. So they had these grocery giveaway programs where they were giving away thousands of pounds of groceries to low-income residents of the Bay Area. But the the program that moved me more than any was their uh, free breakfast for children program. They simply fed young people breakfast every day before going to school. And within one year, uh, they replicated it in cities across the country. And they were feeding over 10,000 young people every single day. And I was so moved by that because around 2001, I started thinking about food issues more seriously, going to conferences. And I had read this book, uh, Food Politics. And just reading and learning about the immense influence that the food and beverage industry has on the the consumption patterns of all of us, but particularly the way they they target children, sometimes starting as young as two years old and, you know, the kind of exponential rise that we've seen in preventable diet-related illnesses and just the fact that this generation of young people is at risk for having a shorter lifespan than their parents' generation. And I really felt like I needed to do something. And that's kind of how I launched into my food activism, which eventually evolved into my cookbook writing. That's fantastic. And are you a vegan full time? So uh, I currently don't eat any animal products, but I, I, I won't say I reject the term vegan. I choose not to label myself a vegan because 
I'm, I'm really about encouraging people to eat based on what their body needs, what their values might be, but not choosing a label and kind of following the script accordingly. I think that's where people get in trouble. The tricky thing is when you have your book published by um, a major corporation, as I do, uh, oftentimes... Ten Speed Press, you lucky guy. They're such a great imprint. I love Ten Speed Press. And actually, the funny thing is, this was the first book that I was actually excited about having the word vegan in the title. My um, prior two books, um, Vegan Soul Kitchen and Inspired Vegan, which was with another publisher, I didn't want vegan in the title. Because for me, the veganism was part of it. You know, I really... Um, I'm clear about this growing body of research that is showing that plant-centered diets can be effective in helping to um, prevent chronic illnesses or help to you know, heal chronic illnesses. So I really want to have that um, as a tool for people who might be dealing with some health issues. But what has been most important to me is about getting people eating real food again. You know, n- not just the vegan and vegetarian food, but just Americans in general. We're eating far too much processed and packaged and um, just fake food. Yeah. So a large part of it is also just teaching people how to cook again, just giving them the basic rudimentary skills of how to take some f- food that's fresh, make it from scratch, and have a meal that's satisfying, that's delicious, and then um, looks good too. <laughs> well, you did a really good job because all of your recipes are very approachable. And your particular approach has been to take the various African diasporas all across the world, Brazil, in the Caribbean, in the South, you take those various influences and you're kind of creating a new fusion. And I think you're doing it so smartly. Thank you. Well, you know, the thing is, I'll say this, so much of, I guess, in terms of what has influenced me more than anything in my approach to cooking is Louisiana cooking. Because when we think about um, just that amalgam of you know, the cuisines from Native Americans and Europeans and Africans kind of coming together and creating this whole new cuisine. Because I really see Southern cooking as the original modern global fusion cuisine, if you want to look at it like that. That's true. And so um, originally I was focusing a lot on African-American cuisine because, you know, African-American cuisine gets such a bad rap. You know, I think people, when they hear, when they talk about soul food, most often in their minds is synonymous with African-American cuisine. This is what black people eat. You know, the comfort foods, uh, the deep fried fatty meats, macaroni and cheese, like the things that traditionally people would have on holidays and celebrations. Um, or when people think about African-American cuisine, they're thinking about the kind of antebellum survival food, you know, the food that many in the kind of black belt um, states that were more paternalistic, the, the, the remnants of the plantation owners' tables. And, you know, I'm not trying to reject either of those. But I want people to understand the diversity and complexity of it and kind of, you know, unpeel the layers and get back to the roots, the foundation of it. And we're talking about things like black-eyed peas, sugar snap peas, pole beans, uh, dandelion greens, collards, kale. Like these are just like okra, you know, just like really healthful, delicious, simple, good food. And um, I want people to understand that that is is, as much of the – foundation of the cuisine is any other thing and and to really complicate their understanding of it. So you're not copying dishes that we normally find in the soul food category or the southern food category. You're doing new creations. So take one of your favorite dishes and walk me through how you approached this Hmm. and, um, and how it all turns out. 
Well, uh, you know, one of my favorite recipes in here, I have to say, it's my blackened okra with red rice. I'm so glad you brought that up (laughs) because I actually wanted to talk about blackened okra with red rice. So tell us about that dish. What was the inspiration and where do you take it? So a couple things. One, I know a lot of people have an aversion to what they see as a sliminess of okra. And, you know, oftentimes when you're cooking in a stew or gumbo, it does have that gelatinous kind of texture that turns some people off. And I found that one way to make it more palatable for those type of people is grilling it or um, broiling it. You know, those are the ways I kind of ease in the okra haters. Uh And so with this recipe, um, you know, I suggest grilling it. But then I take this... um, blackened seasoning, which, you know, comes from Cajun uh, Paul cooking. Prudhomme. Yeah, exactly. And then I um, coat it in that, and then I um, serve it along with this kind of um, Coastal Carolina-inspired red rice. So being a, a child of the 90s, I'm definitely um, a hip-hop head. And so <laughs> when just even thinking about, like, you know, hip-hop production is kind of cutting and pacing and reworking and remixing different sounds and energies and bringing them together to create something new, that was an inspiration as well. So I, I like to think of it as, you know, jazz cooking, hip-hop, um, just all those elements kind of, like, inspire the way that I approach cooking. One of the things I've never seen in a book before is along with the typical how many servings a recipe gives you. You also give us the soundtrack and the book. So tell us about that, Bryant. Why does each recipe have a soundtrack and a book? Um, So I just grew up in a very musical household. You know, all my um, mom and her siblings, whenever we had family gatherings around food, there'd be people playing the piano, singing, and just like really bringing art and culture to the table. You know, what we've seen with this industrial food where food has become such a commodity, it's almost like there's this huge chasm where food is on one side and art and community and culture is way over there. And I'm really trying to bridge those gaps and bring those things back together because I think in terms of exciting people to work for something different, to move past this industrial food system and really get back to just like local, seasonal, sustainable food, we can't start with the, the high-level public policy. You can't start with the heady intellectual ideas. You have to start with something that's visceral, that's emotional. And my guiding mantra has been start with the visceral, move to the cerebral, and end at the political. Understanding that, you know, these food issues are political, and we need to look at public policies. But I like to start with the thing that everyone can relate to, the thing that brings everyone to the table, and that's, like, good food, conversation, music, art, culture, all those things. And I really try to express that in the books. So you have a lot of very lofty goals with the work that you have set out to do in life. And this is your third book. What have you accomplished through your work that you're the proudest of? I have to say... I need to think about it on the different levels because when I think about my work as a, an educator and an activist, I think one of the proudest moments for me was when I was working with um, kids in New York City and one of the young women in our program who was a young mother. She had a two-year-old son. She um, was so committed to helping other young moms think about the issues that affect children because she was so committed to you know feeding her own son healthy foods that she... Um, started doing workshops for the young moms at the um, center that we were based at doing our project. And so just for me to have one of the people, the, the, the kids that I work with, come up with this idea and it'd be wildly successful, I think that is one of my high moments as an educator. Um, as a cookbook writer, I would say one the, the litmus test for the success of my recipes for me isn't really if my cool friends and 
Oakland or Brooklyn or Portland or New Orleans like the recipes, but like do my older relatives in Arkansas and Mississippi and Tennessee, like will they like them? And the reception that I've gotten from my family is really, um, it, it moves me. When you bring people delicious food, you know, that's what moves people. You could talk about the ethics and the environmental issues and the health, how healthy it is, but that doesn't move most people. You know what I mean? People like good food. And so I figure if you can do all those things, if you can give people delicious food that, that's also, you know, local, that's seasonal, that's sustainable, then that's when you've done a great job. Bryant Terry, author of Afro Vegan. How there's a music in the streets, how there's a music in the air, a little old soul beat, how there's dancing everywhere. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions and hear all about upcoming special events by visiting poppytooker.com. You can find videos, recipes, and even order cookbooks there. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, Camellia Brand Beans, and St. Tammany Tourist Commission. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau, and from the new baby of the Dickie Brennan and Company family of restaurants. Acorn is now open in City Park. Located at the Louisiana Children's Museum, Acorn is open 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. Tuesday through Sunday. Coffee, breakfast, lunch, and snacks served right among the oaks of City Park. Museum admission is not required so I'll see you there for coffee sometime soon. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch in the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.